0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, Daryl Davis is an accomplished musician. He is an actor. Uh, He is a a well-respected and award-winning musician. Uh, We just played Bruce Hornsby in the range. Uh, Daryl has played with Bruce. Uh, he's played with uh, Chuck Berry for many years, uh, with Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and another great, and Muddy Waters, for God's sake. Uh, just a, a great stuff. And, and I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about an incredible uh, documentary that, uh, that Daryl is involved with. So it is uh, with great pleasure that we uh, welcome uh, Daryl Davis to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Daryl, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today.
2: Hey, it's
1: my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, listen, there's so many things. We could spend an hour just talking about your musical and acting career, but, <laughs> but I want to spend a couple of minutes on that. Uh, this, this has been a remarkable ride for you, hasn't it, from a musical standpoint?
2: Oh, indeed, and, and continues to be so.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, to play with some of the all-time greats for a guy growing up in Chicago and learning his chops and and, and doing the sorts of things that you did, to to be sitting in there with some of these guys like Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis, it it had to be just almost surreal for you.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are the guys who, who invented a whole genre of music called rock and
1: roll. And, and you were a big part of that for so many years as well, and that, it was incredible. Uh, and, and like I say and, and muddy waters and, and some of the iconic stuff that has gone on with that. Uh, how did you get into the acting? I mean from, from music that, that the music thing seems pretty well. I mean Chicago's a musical hotbed, and always has been, of course, uh, in, yeah. so, in so many well, ways. But did how did you get, how'd you get in front of the camera?
2: Actually, it started uh, on the stage, and I, uh, I was auditioning for a uh, for a stage play. One of my music teachers, I graduated with a degree in music from Howard University. Uh, they were uh, The uh, cast was looking for somebody to play piano and act, and they uh, called one of my teachers who referred me, and that's what started it. And then from there it led uh, to screen and TV and
1: other things. And and, and there's a long resume there, too. I'll, I won't go down the list right now, but people can uh, can Google that and get all the details about this. You By the way, you're not unfamiliar with Hamilton. You've played here before, haven't you?
2: I have played here before. I, I am familiar with, with the uh, play, but I've not seen it yet.
1: Yeah, with, uh, with, with a number of the acts, because I know I talked to some local musicians, and I mentioned you were going to be on the show, and I said, I saw Daryl when he was in Hamilton uh, uh, a, a couple of years ago, I guess, a number of years ago. You played a couple of gigs oh, you here. Mean, you in Hamilton,
2: Ontario. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I thought
2: you were talking about there, There's a play called Hamilton. No, I know that,
1: too. Yeah, now I haven't yeah, seen that one that, yet, yeah, either. Yeah,
2: I, I have played in Hamilton, Ontario. It was many years ago, and, uh, and I was there a few years ago for a uh, lecture.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that other element, because, I mean, you're, a, a, as I say, an accomplished musician, an actor, a civil rights advocate, and and, and you have done more than just talk the talk. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what, what I guess, led to it and what inspired this whole idea about doing the documentary, about how you started to take this to the next level and actually engage with the, the people that were, were involved in, in hate speech and so many other terrible things that have gone on in the last little while. Uh,
2: well, that's- Actually, you know, uh, I had some racist incidents as a, as a child, you know, which stayed with me and uh, formed a question in my mind of, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And that question has stuck with me to my present age of 58. Uh, later on in life as an adult, things like that, I began seeking answers for that question. And believe it or not, it, it came in a, in a musical setting where a uh, clansman had approached me about my style of playing piano like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. He was fascinated by that and, and could not believe that a black man uh, could do that because he'd never seen one before. And I had to explain to him that that's where Jerry Lee Lewis got that style, learning from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. So he and I you know, struck up a, uh, a friendship over time, and he was the one I, I decided, you know, I want to write a book on the plan, go around the country interviewing these people to get my answer as to how can you hate me when you don't even know me and he was the one who provided the uh, the information to the Klan leader at the time. And I contacted that guy, started the book, and the book came out uh, some years ago, and, you know, it generated a lot of publicity. And then I would be interviewed for different stories uh, in media, radio, and TV. And a uh, documentarian filmmaker uh, by the name of um, Matt Ornstein uh, had apparently heard of, of the story, and uh, contacted me and wondered if I would be uh, willing to sit down and talk with him, and I did, and he decided that I would be the subject of a documentary he would like to make.
1: Well, Matt, now, Matt Matt Ornstein, who is the director of Accidental Courtesy, is with us on, uh, on the show here. He joins us uh, in our conversation. Matt, uh, we've been talking with Daryl for the last couple of minutes. Thank you so very much for making some time for us. It's great to have you on the program today, Matt.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Good morning to you and your listeners.
1: Let's, let's talk a little bit about, Daryl gave us a little bit of the background about, about the book and, and the uh, research he was doing uh, toward the book and, of course, uh, what happened and, 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 and the, the, the chatter, I guess, that that, that that book certainly caused. What was it that caught your attention, Matt, that, that made you decide, hey, this is a project worth pursuing?
2: Well,
0: it caught my attention immediately for a couple reasons. but The, the big thing for me was wanting to know why he did it. And I'm not totally sure if we get to the root of that, but hopefully we have a good conversation on the subject.
1: Did you ever get an answer to that yourself? Did, 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 you, did you know Daryl before this?
0: I, I became aware of Daryl through a newspaper article and then have gotten to know him much better through this project. And uh, we continue to be fascinated, for sure. I mean, I think he has reasons that he does it, some of which are, you know, trying to understand the root of the, the problem with racism. But also, I feel like uh, Daryl found a way that he can make a difference, and he continues to do that.
1: How did you decide to to make that step, Daryl? I mean, when when you're faced with hatred, and 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 you mentioned that growing up, and, and even in your professional life, you, you saw examples of this. Uh, you know, I've talked to John Ellison, who's a great R and B musician. You know, the, the guy that wrote some kind of wonderful, that classic song. He lives here in the Hamilton area now. And uh, I've come to know John a little bit, and he talked about some of his dealings in his life uh, growing up in the southern United States and some of the racism he was faced with. Uh, some people, Daryl, re- respond differently. Some people run from it. Some people try to, to pretend it's not happening. Uh, you decided to confront it, but not in a violent way. What, what made you do that?
2: Uh, you know, I think the answer to that question would be my, my childhood, my background. Uh, I had already seen... Uh, long before most Americans, my peers, had seen the way the future should be and the way people can get along. Because as a child, I was an American embassy brat living overseas. So over, you know, back in the early 1960s, when I was in grade school, elementary school, um, my classes had people from all over the world uh, there. Uh, Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all their kids went to the same school. So I grew up around uh, a multicultural environment whereby my peers back here in the states were either going to newly integrated or still segregated schools, and there was not the amount of diversity uh in the country that uh that we had uh, overseas. that scenario had maybe twelve to fifteen years before we would arrive here in the states, so I was already accustomed to it, and I saw that as being the way of the future uh and today, when you walk into a classroom that's how it is it's it's very multicultural very uh mm-hmm. multi ethnic and um so i was I was already prepared for it so i i knew that that my peers had had a ways to go in terms of learning uh diversity and learning to accept so that's why i could enter it without uh being enraged or violent or things like that you know it's sort of like you know you, you've already been there so you know if you have children and, and you and you're watching them grow you know what mistakes they're going to make you know what to look out for you know that they're going to go through certain things you know, they're going to break up with their first girlfriend. You know it's going to be okay later on, you know, but, you know, et cetera. So you, you've already been there, done that. So I had already been there, done that. I'd already been around a, mul- a multitude of people from all over the world. Our country is just now getting used to it. And unfortunately, it's taken a long time for us to get
1: used to it. You mentioned about that initial discussion with that individual in in, in the bar, where you know he was questioning about the, the piano style, etc. And you you made the the comments about Jerry Lee Lewis, and and you befriended that individual. And and at some point in that conversation, you discovered that he was a member of the KKK. Uh, but you got information from him after after befriending him. Uh, you got information about actually you go to see the, the head of the organization. I mean, that's that's going right into the belly of the beast, Daryl.
2: Well, that's the only way to do it. You know, I mean, you know, if, if you want to you know, get down to the, to the nitty-gritty, then you know, get away right from the horse's mouth. I mean, anybody can go out and write a book on, on the Klan or on, or on uh, Christopher Columbus without ever having, having met these individuals because there's enough information out there. But, uh, but my book is different in the uh, regard that uh, no book had ever been written on the Klan by a black author from the perspective of sitting down face-to-face and talking with them. I wanted to get the answers myself rather than get them out of some book written by a white author, because a white author cannot ask questions and get the answers, the same answers that a black uh, author would. It's it's a whole different scenario. So I think, you know, that is what uh, led to to the uniqueness of what I was doing and led to the publicity. And that's what, uh, you know, uh, Matt Ornstein tapped into.
1: But when you went and saw that individual, the, the head of the KKK at the time, uh, you just touched on something that I think is very germane to this discussion. You wanted that meeting to be face-to-face. You didn't want a phone interview. You, you wanted that eye contact, didn't you?
2: Absolutely, absolutely, because uh, I wanted him to see me as a human being. And in order to, to get him to agree, because I was told by the Klansman uh, who, who provided me the information, um, the guy told me not to fool with this guy, that this guy would kill me and he, and he uh, you know, asked me not to reveal to the Klan leader where I got his personal information from. So I, I agreed, and my secretary is white, and I had her contact the, uh, the Klan leader, knowing, because I, I know a lot about the Klan, I I, I said I've, I've studied up on them long before I ever uh, decided to approach them, but um, I knew that he might possibly pick up in my voice that I'm black and didn't hang up the phone if I called and said, you know, he's not talking to me. But I knew that if if my secretary called his wife, he would know by her voice that she's white, and automatically he would not assume that a white woman is working for a black man, especially a black man who's writing a book on the Ku Klux Klan because they simply did not exist. I was the first. So that would increase the odds that he may agree to our meeting. And then once he agrees and shows up and sees me face-to-face, then he can decide if you're going to cower away and run away because I'm black, or if he's going to come in the room and sit down and talk and have a conversation like he agreed to do, or if he's going to try to beat me up or what. So I, I was willing to take that chance, and
1: uh, it turned out very well. But but you didn't know that heading into the meeting. I mean, you'd already been warned that violence might ensue here. What were your thoughts? What were your emotions as, as you went into that meeting that day?
2: Well, I mean, he's a human being, you know, and I was— I've certainly had physical, physical confrontations before with people who don't wear robes and hoods, who, who may not like me, or something like that. So, you know, I, I was not armed or anything like that. But, you know, if I was attacked, I would respond, surely. So I, I took the chance to, to, to come there armed only with my wits and my information on the plan and impress him with, with my knowledge. And I asked them to comply with, with what he agreed to do which was sit down and and talk with me as he as he told his uh, my secretary that he would but if he chose not to then I certainly wasn't going to stop him
1: was there I think you
0: guys touched on something very important a moment ago that part of Gerald's technique is in person yeah talking with people and in an, in an age when we're very willing to hide behind a computer or you know just texting people like Gerald's thing is they have to sit face to face with him and Confront is humanity, and that is certainly certainly something we uh, on the film side have taken away from this project.
1: How do you, how do you capture that, Matt? I mean, you know, Daryl's done a, a wonderful job of, of painting a picture of how that that meeting went and the scenario and 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 the vibe, I guess, that was in the room when when the two of them finally sat down there. How do you, how do you capture that in in the documentary?
0: <laughs> I think mean, that's a hard one. In a situation like that, you have to do a reenactment, or you do what we did, where he tells the story and we have some visual aids. Something I am very proud of in the film, though, is that we were able to go with Daryl in person for him to meet some uh, some white supremacists, some that he knew, uh, one that he just met, and we got to kind of see the process. And in, in film, you really want to show, not tell, if you have the option. Mm-hmm. So I'm particularly proud of those sections of the of, of the of the piece.
1: It's it's. <laughs> I, I'm trying to put myself in, in, in your place, Daryl, and I, I find it very impossible to do, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Matt is with us to be able to describe exactly how the documentary can <laughs> can capture this, because a time and place, I mean, you know, when somebody says, by the way, Daryl, uh, this guy might kill you if he doesn't like what you're saying or well, what you're doing. I'll,
2: I'll uh, tell you what. You know, when I was in Hamilton a few years ago, uh, there was a big controversy with a, with a very uh, racist situation. Perhaps you you will uh, recall. I won't say the person's name because I think he's over and done with that. But um, uh, I was brought there because you all were having an issue with a restaurant that was uh, displaying this Confederate flag. Yeah, we, we
1: we covered it extensively on the show. Okay, all right. So when I got there, uh,
2: I was told about the situation, and um, and they wanted me to speak on on racial healing and all that kind of stuff. And the restaurant did not want to serve uh, Muslim food and all that kind of. Stuff. That's right. Okay, so I, um, I I told the person the sponsor who brought me there. Um, you know, why don't you uh, introduce me to this person who 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 is causing all this racial animus? He was like, "Are you crazy? You know, you know I don't even know him. I don't, I don't. even want to talk to him." Blah blah blah. I said, "No, no, 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 no." I said, "This is how how we resolve things. You know, let's call him and let's let's arrange a meeting. See if he'd be willing to meet with us." And so he said, are you sure you really want to, want to do this? You know, I was only bringing you here to give a lecture. I said, well, look, you know, you're bringing me up here to explain how, how I go about uh, healing racial um, problems. You know, I might as well do, do some of it, uh, you know, live, while, you know, while I'm here if you've got a problem. So he called the guy and, and we uh, went over there and had lunch and, uh, to his restaurant and met with him. I sat down with him and talked with him for about an hour or so. And he began to understand, you know, what the problem was. You know, he didn't really know the history of 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 the flag and how it affected certain kinds of people. You know, because obviously he's Canadian. You know, he doesn't have share share the same um, emotion. You know, that that a black person from the United States uh, would share. Or anybody else who knows the history of that of that flag. And over time, uh, I'm not saying you know that I that I you know am one hundred percent responsible for him coming coming to to his uh, conclusion to get rid of it. But I was an impetus, and influence on that.
1: And, and, and as you did, by the way, with other members of the KKK, we talked about this initial meeting. But you've met with dozens of these, and many of them, after those conversations and the friendships that that have been fostered as a result of that, have actually quit the KKK. And and, and you, they basically, I guess, have sent them, you know, the their uniforms. I mean, you've got souvenirs of of of, of those uh, those uh, moments when when these people have had those epiphanies.
2: Uh, yes, I do. And I plan to put them uh, in, a, in a museum, uh, which, which I plan to open up one day as soon as I find the, the, uh, the appropriate place. But, you know, but the, the, uh, the film, you know, I don't think the name has been mentioned yet, but it's called Accidental Courtesy.
1: That's right, yeah.
2: And, um, and that uh, captures, you know, a lot of what, of what I believe, a lot of what I feel. And you see, you know, different reactions from different people, people who support what I do, those who, who vehemently oppose what I do and that's fine it's it it, it is real that you know, the, you, know, you know racial animus in, in our country the united states is is a is a very prominent thing and and i want to point out that that this film began um you know long before uh, the uh the uh election of the of our of the president elect right now so you know this is not something that just popped up because of uh, of of this uh, influx of our uh, racism that you know, that we're seeing today. You know, this has been going on. And for me, it's been going on for, for almost 30 years. Um, but you know, the film started several years ago, you know, maybe three years ago, something like that. And um, and now uh, it's, it's, it's very timely because of what we're seeing in our country.
1: Matt, as you're filming this, I, I mean, you're a professional, you're a filmmaker, but you're also a spectator as this is going on. And as I say, some of the things that Daryl has done, you, you have uh, in real time in this documentary. How, how are you responding to all of this?
0: Well, it's certainly interesting. It was unlike anything in my previous experience. I mean, it's easy to divorce yourself to a certain extent. I think a lot of the reaction in a situation like that, when you hear someone who says terrible things is the person who hears it or who is affected towards feels powerless. And in a situation where I have a room full of cameras to preserve it for all time and show it to the world, you maybe don't feel as powerless even if you do feel personally horrified. Uh, It is interesting to note that everyone who you see in this film believes that history will judge them to be correct. The white supremacists you hear talking think that when people watch this in the future, they'll think that people on our side were foolish to think that the uh, so-called experiment of race mixing could ever work. So everyone in this movie is virtually certain that they are completely correct.
1: Where can we see the movie? We've got a bit of a left arrow.
0: question. You guys are doing such a good job keeping this on message, and I haven't even. <laughs> 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 so, Courtesy is in New York and theaters this week. It's expanding to some other cities after that. It's on PBS February 13th. It goes to Netflix March 1st. We are talking to Canadian distributors at the moment. I hope to get it up there. It's played in Calgary, but I'm hoping to get it around a little bit more. You guys can go through the Facebook page or the film's website. Let us know you're interested. We want to bring it as many places as possible and spread Daryl's message.
1: Is the book still available, Daryl? Uh, the book is being updated right oh,
2: now. Oh, great. It'll be, yeah, it'll be back out in the uh, in the spring, I hope.
1: Well, we'll watch for that as well. Uh, listen, and, congratulations to both of you, uh, Daryl, for the great know, work that I, you're I, doing.
2: I, thank you. I also want to give a, give a very big shout-out to one of my biggest music fans up there in Hamilton. I remember him. His name was Mark. Uh, and is Mark uh, Panopoulos. Panopoulos.
1: I just uh, talked to Mark this morning when he found out you're going on. He, he still works no, here and he at the radio station. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and also, um, Marnie Alexander. The, uh, the widow of, of
1: your uh, lieutenant governor. Of Link, so, a dear friend of ours.
2: Yes, she, she is a
1: very, very good friend of mine. Uh, the anniversary of Link's birthday is coming up in about a week and a half, uh, so we'll remember, Marnie, on your behalf. Daryl, thank please you so around. very much for this, and, and Matt, congratulations. on. Uh, I, l- I look forward to the doc. If we don't see it on PBS, we'll catch it on Netflix and maybe even in a theater, too. Thank you both, gentlemen.